Question 7, Part 2 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 7. Of the Grace of Christ as an Individual Man. Part 2. Articles 8 to 13. Eighth Article. Whether in Christ there was the gift of prophecy. Objection 1. It would seem that in Christ there was not the gift of prophecy. For prophecy implies a certain obscure and imperfect knowledge, according to Numbers 12.6. If there be among you a prophet of the Lord, I will appear to him in a vision, or I will speak to him in a dream. But Christ had full and unveiled knowledge, much more than Moses, of whom it is subjoined that, Plainly and not by riddles and figures doth he see God in Numbers 6.8. Therefore, we ought not to admit prophecy in Christ. Objection to further. As faith has to do with what is not seen, and hope with what is not possessed, prophecy has to do what is not present but distant. For a prophet means, as it were, a teller of far-off things, but in Christ there could be neither faith nor hope, as was said above in Articles 3 and 4. Hence prophecy ought not to be admitted in Christ. Objection 3. Further, a prophet is in an inferior order to an angel. Hence Moses, who was the greatest of the prophets, as was said above, in the pars secunda secundae, question 174, article 4, is said to have spoken with an angel in the desert, in Acts 7.38. But Christ was made lower than the angels, not only as to the knowledge of his soul, but also as regards to the sufferings of his body, as is shown in Hebrews 2.9. Therefore, it seems that Christ was not a prophet. On the contrary, it is written of him in Deuteronomy 18.15, Thy God will raise up to thee a prophet of thy nation and of thy brethren. And he says of himself in Matthew 13.57 and John 4.44, A prophet is not without honor save in his own country. I answer that. A prophet means, as it were, a teller or seer of far-off things, inasmuch as he knows and announces what things are far from men's senses, as Augustine says in Against Faustus 16.18. Now we must bear in mind that no one can be called a prophet for knowing and announcing what is distant from others with whom he is not, and this is clear in regard to place and time. For if anyone living in France were to know and announce to others living in France 
what things were transpiring in Syria, it would be prophetical, as Eliseus told Jezi in 4 Kings 5.26, how the man had leaped down from his chariot to meet him. But if anyone living in Syria were to announce what things were there, it would not be prophetical. And the same appears in regard to time, for it was prophetical of Isaiah to announce that Cyrus, king of the Persians, would rebuild the temple of God, as is clear from Isaiah 44.28. But it was not prophetical of Esdras to write it, in whose time it took place. Hence, if God or angels, or even the blessed, know and announce what is beyond our knowing, this does not pertain to prophecy since they nowise touch our state. Now Christ, before his passion, touched our state, inasmuch as he was not merely a comprehensor, but a wayfarer. Hence it was prophetical in him to know and announce what was beyond the knowledge of other wayfarers, and for this reason he is called a prophet. Reply to Objection 1. These words do not prove that enigmatical knowledge, notably by dream and vision, belongs to the nature of prophecy. But the comparison is drawn between other prophets, who saw divine things in dreams and visions, and Moses, who saw God plainly and not by riddles, and yet who is called a prophet according to Deuteronomy 24.10. And there arose no more a prophet in Israel like unto Moses. Nevertheless, it may be said that although Christ had full and unveiled knowledge as regards the intellective part, yet in the imaginative part he had certain similitudes in which divine things could be viewed inasmuch as he was not only a comprehensor but a wayfarer. Reply to Objection 2 Faith regards such things as are unseen by him who believes, and hope, too, is of such things as are not possessed by the one who hopes. But prophecy is of such things as are beyond the sense of men, with whom the prophet dwells and converses in this state of life. And hence faith and hope are repugnant to the perfection of Christ's beatitude, but prophecy is not. Reply to Objection 3 Angels, being comprehensors, are above prophets, who are merely wayfarers, but not above Christ, who is both a comprehensor and a wayfarer. Ninth Article Whether in Christ there was the fullness of grace? Objection 1. It would seem that in Christ there was not the fullness of grace. For the virtues flow from grace, as was said above, in the Pars Prima Secunde, question 110, article 4. But in Christ there were not all the virtues, for there was neither faith nor hope in him, as was shown above in articles 3 and 4. Therefore, in Christ there was not the fullness of grace. Objection to further, as is plain from what was said above, in the Pars Prima Secunde, question 111, article 2, 
grace is divided into operating and cooperating. Now, operating grace signifies that whereby the ungodly is justified, which has no place in Christ, who never lay under any sin. Therefore, in Christ there was not the fullness of grace. Objection 3 further. It is written in James 1.17, Every best gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But what comes thus is possessed partially and not fully. Therefore, no creature, not even the soul of Christ, can have the fullness of the gifts of grace. On the contrary, it is written in John 1.14, We saw him full of grace and truth. I answer that, to have fully is to have wholly and perfectly. Now totality and perfection can be taken in two ways. First, as regards their intensive quantity, for instance, I may say that some man has whiteness fully because he has as much of it as can be naturally be in him. Secondly, as regards power, for instance, if anyone be said to have life fully, inasmuch as he has it in all the effects or works of life. And thus man has life fully, but senseless animals and plants have not. Now in both these ways, Christ has the fullness of grace. First, since he has grace in its highest degree, in the most perfect way it can be had. And this appears first from the nearness of Christ's soul to the cause of grace. For it was said above in Article 1 that the nearer a recipient is to the inflowing cause, the more it receives. And hence the soul of Christ, which is more closely united to God than all other rational creatures, receives the greatest outpouring of his grace. Secondly, in his relation to the effect. For the soul of Christ so received grace that, in a manner, it is poured out from it upon others. And hence it behooved him to have the greatest grace, as fire, which is the cause of heat in other hot things, is of all things the hottest. Likewise, as regards the virtue of grace, he had grace fully, since he had it for all the operations and effects of grace, and this because grace was bestowed on him as upon a universal principle in the genus of such as have grace. Now the virtue of the first principle of a genus universally extends itself to all the effects of that genus. Thus the force of the sun, which is the universal cause of generation, as Dionysius says in On the Divine Names 1, extends to all things that come under generation. Hence, the second fullness of grace is seen in Christ inasmuch as his grace extends to all the effects of grace, which are the virtues, gifts, and the like. Reply to Objection 1. Faith and hope signify effects of grace 
with certain defects on the part of the recipient of grace, inasmuch as faith is of the unseen, and hope of what is not yet possessed. Hence it was not necessary that in Christ, who is the author of grace, there should be any defects such as faith and hope imply. But whatever perfection is in faith and hope was in Christ most perfectly, as in fire there are not all the modes of heat which are defective by the subject's defect, but whatever belongs to the perfection of heat. Reply to Objection 2. It pertains essentially to operating grace to justify, but that it makes the ungodly to be just is accidental to it on the part of the subject in which sin is found. Therefore the soul of Christ was justified by operating grace, inasmuch as it was rendered just and holy by it from the beginning of his conception, not that it was until then sinful, or even not just. Reply to Objection 3. The fullness of grace is attributed to the soul of Christ according to the capacity of the creature, and not by comparison with the infinite fullness of the divine goodness. Tenth Article Whether the Fullness of Grace is Proper to Christ Objection 1. It would seem that the fullness of grace is not proper to Christ. For what is proper to anyone belongs to him alone. But to be full of grace is attributed to some others. For it was said to the Blessed Virgin in Luke one twenty eight, Hail, full of grace. And again it is written in Acts 6.8, Stephen, full of grace and fortitude. Therefore, the fullness of grace is not proper to Christ. Objection to further, what can be communicated to others through Christ does not seem to be proper to Christ. But the fullness of grace can be communicated to others through Christ, since the Apostle says in Ephesians 3.19, that you may be filled unto all the fullness of God. Therefore, the fullness of grace is not proper to Christ. Objection 3. Further, the state of the wayfarer seems to be proportioned to the state of the comprehensor. But in the state of the comprehensor, there will be a certain fullness, since in our heavenly country, with its fullness of all good, although some things are bestowed in a preeminent way, yet nothing is possessed singularly. As is clear from Gregory, in his homily on the hundred sheep. Therefore, in the state of the comprehensor, the fullness of grace is possessed by everyone, and hence the fullness of grace is not proper to Christ. On the contrary, the fullness of grace is attributed to Christ inasmuch as he is the only begotten of the Father, according to John 1.14. We saw him, as it were, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But to be the only begotten of the Father is proper to Christ. Therefore, it is proper to him 
to be full of grace and truth. I answer that. The fullness of grace may be taken in two ways. First, on the part of the grace itself, or secondly, on the part of the one who has grace. Now on the part of grace itself, there is said to be the fullness of grace when the limit of grace is attained, as to essence and power, inasmuch as grace is possessed in its highest possible excellence and in its greatest possible extension to all its effects. And this fullness of grace is proper to Christ. But on the part of the subject, there is said to be the fullness of grace when anyone fully possesses grace according to his condition, whether as regards intensity, by reason of grace being intense in him, to the limit assigned by God according to Ephesians 4.1. But to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the giving of Christ. Or, as regards power, by reason of a man having the help of grace for all that belongs to his office or state, as the Apostle says in Ephesians 3.8. To me, the least of all the saints is given the grace to enlighten all men. And this fullness of grace is not proper to Christ, but is communicated to others by Christ. Reply to Objection 1. The Blessed Virgin is said to be full of grace, not on the part of grace itself, since she had not the grace in its greatest possible excellence, nor for all the effects of grace. But she is said to be full of grace in reference to herself, that is, inasmuch as she had sufficient grace for the state to which God had chosen her, that is, to be the mother of his only begotten Son. So too, Stephen is said to be full of grace, since he had sufficient grace to be a fit minister and witness of God, to which office he had been called. And the same must be said of others. Of these fullnesses, one is greater than another, according as one is divinely preordained to a higher or lower state. Reply to Objection 2. The Apostle is there speaking of that fullness which has reference to the subject, in comparison with what man is divinely preordained to. And this is either something in common, to which all the saints are preordained, or something special, which pertains to the preeminence of some. And in this manner, a certain fullness of grace is common to all the saints, notably, to have grace enough to merit eternal life, which consists in the enjoyment of God. And this is the fullness of grace which the Apostle desires for the faithful to whom he writes. Reply to Objection 3. These gifts which are in common in heaven, notably vision, possession and fruition and the like, have certain gifts corresponding to them in this life which are also common to all the saints. Yet there are certain prerogatives of saints, both in heaven and on earth, which are not possessed by all. Eleventh article. Whether the grace of Christ is infinite. 
Objection 1. It would seem that Christ's grace is infinite. For everything immeasurable is infinite. But the grace of Christ is immeasurable, since it is written in John 3.34, For God doth not give the Spirit by measure to his Son, namely Christ. Therefore, the grace of Christ is infinite. Objection to further. An infinite effect betokens an infinite power, which can only spring from an infinite essence. But the effect of Christ's grace is infinite, since it extends to the salvation of the whole human race, for he is the propitiation for our sins, and for those of the whole world, as it is said in 1 John 2.2. Therefore, the grace of Christ is infinite. Objection 3 further. Every finite thing by addition can attain to the quantity of any other finite thing. Therefore, if the grace of Christ is finite, the grace of any other man could increase to such an extent as to reach to an equality with Christ's grace, against what is written in Job 28.17, Gold nor crystal cannot equal it as Gregory expounds in his commentary on Job. Therefore, the grace of Christ is infinite. On the contrary, grace is something created in the soul. But every created thing is finite, according to Wisdom 11.21. Thou hast ordered all things in measure and number and weight. Therefore, the grace of Christ is not infinite. I answer that, as was made clear above in question to article 10, a twofold grace may be considered in Christ, the first being the grace of union, which, as was said in question 6, article 6, is for him to be personally united to the Son of God, which union has been bestowed gratis on the human nature. And it is clear that this grace is infinite, as the person of God is infinite. The second is habitual grace, which may be taken in two ways. First, as a being, and in this way it must be a finite being, since it is in the soul of Christ as in a subject, and Christ's soul is a creature having a finite capacity. Hence, the being of grace cannot be infinite, since it cannot exceed its subject. Secondly, it may be viewed in its specific nature of grace, and thus the grace of Christ can be termed infinite, since it is not limited, that is, it has whatsoever can pertain to the nature of grace, and what pertains to the nature of grace is not bestowed on him in a fixed measure. Seeing that, according to the purpose of God to whom it pertains to measure grace, it is bestowed on Christ's soul as on a universal principle for bestowing grace on human nature, according to Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, He hath graced us in his beloved Son. Thus we might say that the light of the sun is infinite, not indeed in being, but in the nature of light, as having whatever can pertain to the nature of light. 
Reply to Objection 1. When it is said that the Father doth not give the Spirit my measure, it may be expounded of the gift which God the Father from all eternity gave the Son, notably, the divine nature, which is an infinite gift. Hence the comment of a certain gloss, so that the Son may be as great as the Father is. Or again, it may be referred to the gift which is given the human nature, to be united to the divine person, and this also is an infinite gift. Hence a gloss says on this text, As the Father begot a full and perfect word, it is united thus full and perfect to human nature. Thirdly, it may be referred to habitual grace, inasmuch as the grace of Christ extends to whatever belongs to grace. Hence Augustine, expounding this, says, The division of the gifts is a measurement, for to one indeed by the Spirit is given the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge. But Christ, the giver, does not receive by measure. Reply to Objection 2 The grace of Christ has an infinite effect, both because of the aforesaid infinity of grace, and because of the unity of the divine person to whom Christ's soul is united. Reply to Objection 3 The lesser can attain by augment to the quantity of the greater when both have the same kind of quantity. But the grace of any man is compared to the grace of Christ as a particular to a universal power. Hence, as the force of fire, no matter how much it increases, can never equal the sun's strength, so the grace of man, no matter how much it increases, can never equal the grace of Christ. Twelfth Article whether the grace of Christ could increase. Objection 1. It would seem that the grace of Christ could increase. For to every finite thing addition can be made. But the grace of Christ was finite. Therefore it could increase. Objection 2. Further, it is by divine power that grace is increased, according to Second Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make all grace abound in you. But the divine power, being infinite, is confined by no limits. Therefore, it seems that the grace of Christ could have been greater. Objection 3 further. It is written in Luke 2, verse 52, that the child Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and grace with God and men. Therefore, the grace of Christ could increase. On the contrary, it is written in John 1.14, We saw him, as it were, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But nothing can be, or can be thought, greater than any one should be the only begotten of the Father. Therefore, no greater grace can be, or can be thought, 
than that of which Christ was full. I answer that, for a form to be incapable of increase happens in two ways. First, on the part of the subject. Secondly, on the part of the form itself. On the part of the subject, indeed, when the subject reaches the utmost limit wherein it partakes of this form, after its own manner, for example, we say that air cannot increase in heat when it has reached the utmost limit of heat which can exist in the nature of air, although there may be greater heat in actual existence, notably the heat of fire. But on the part of the form, the possibility of increase is excluded when a subject reaches the utmost perfection which this form can have by nature. For example, if we say the heat of fire cannot be increased because there cannot be a more perfect grade of heat than that to which fire attains. Now the proper measure of grace, like that of other forms, is determined by the divine wisdom, according to Wisdom 11.21. Thou hast ordered all things in number, weight, and measure. And it is with reference to its end that a measure is set to every form, as there is no greater gravity than that of the earth, because there is no lower place than that of the earth. Now the end of grace is the union of the rational creature with God. But there can neither be, nor be thought, a greater union of the rational creature with God than that which is in the person. And hence the grace of Christ reached the highest measure of grace. Hence it is clear that the grace of Christ cannot be increased on the part of grace. But neither can it be increased on the part of the subject, since Christ as man was a true and full comprehensor from the first instant of his conception. Hence there could have been no increase of grace in him as there could be none in the rest of the blessed, whose grace could not increase, seeing that they have reached their last end. But as regards men who are holy wayfarers, their grace can be increased, not merely on the part of the form, since they have not attained the highest degree of grace, but also on the part of the subject, since they have not yet attained their end. Reply to Objection 1. If we speak of mathematical quantity, addition can be made to any infinite quantity, since there is nothing on the part of finite quantity which is repugnant to addition. But if we speak of natural quantity, there may be repugnance on the part of the form to which a determined quantity is due, even as other accidents are determined. Hence the philosopher says in On the Soul 241 that There is naturally a term of all things, and a fixed limit of magnitude and increase. And hence to the quantity of the whole there can be no addition. And since more must we suppose a term in the forms themselves, beyond which they may not go. Hence it is not necessary that addition should be capable of being made to Christ's grace, although it is finite in its essence. 
Reply to Objection 2. Although the divine power can make something greater and better than the habitual grace of Christ, yet it could not make it to be ordained to anything greater than the personal union with the only begotten Son of the Father. And to this union, by the purpose of the divine wisdom, the measure of grace is sufficient. Reply to Objection 3. Anyone may increase in wisdom and grace in two ways. First, inasmuch as the very habits of wisdom and grace are increased, and in this way Christ did not increase. Secondly, as regards the effects, that is, inasmuch as they do wiser and greater works, and in this way Christ increased in wisdom and grace even as in age, since in the course of time he did more perfect works to prove himself true man, both in the things of God and in the things of man. Thirteenth article. Whether the habitual grace of Christ followed after the union. Objection 1. It would seem that the habitual grace did not follow after the union, for nothing follows itself. But this habitual grace seems to be the same as the grace of union, for Augustine says in On the Predestination of the Saints 15, Every man becomes a Christian from the beginning of his belief, by the same grace whereby this man from his beginning became Christ. And of these two, the first pertains to habitual grace, and the second to the grace of union. Therefore, it would seem that habitual grace did not follow upon the union. Objection to further. Disposition precedes perfection, if not in time, at least in thought. But the habitual grace seems to be a disposition in human nature for the personal union. Therefore, it seems that the habitual grace did not follow, but rather preceded the union. Objection 3 further. The common precedes the proper. But habitual grace is common to Christ and other men, and the grace of union is proper to Christ. Therefore, habitual grace is prior in thought to the union. Therefore, it does not follow it. On the contrary, it is written in Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant, I will uphold him. And farther on, I have given my spirit upon him. And this pertains to the gift of habitual grace. Hence it remains that the assumption of human nature to the unity of the person preceded the habitual grace of Christ. I answer that. The union of the human nature with the divine person, which, as we have said above in question 2, article 10, and in question 6, article 6, is the grace of union, precedes the habitual grace of Christ, not in order of time, but by nature and in thought. And this for a triple reason. First, with reference to the order of the principles of both. For the principle of the union is the person of the Son assuming human nature, 
who is said to be sent into the world inasmuch as he assumed human nature. But the principle of habitual grace, which is given with charity, is the Holy Ghost, who is said to be sent inasmuch as he dwells in the mind by charity. Now the mission of the Son is prior, in the order of nature, to the mission of the Holy Ghost, even as in the order of nature the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Son and love from wisdom. Hence the personal union according to which the mission of the Son took place is prior in the order of nature to habitual grace, according to which the mission of the Holy Ghost takes place. Secondly, the reason of this order may be taken from the relation of grace to its cause. For grace is caused in man by the presence of the Godhead, as light in the air by the presence of the sun. Hence it is written in Ezekiel 43.2, The glory of the God of Israel came in by the way of the east, and the earth shone with his majesty. But the presence of God in Christ is by the union of human nature with the divine person. Hence, the habitual grace of Christ is understood to follow this union as light follows the sun. Thirdly, the reason of this union can be taken from the end of grace, since it is ordained to acting rightly, and action belongs to the suppositum and the individual. Hence action and, in consequence, grace ordaining thereto, presuppose the hypostasis which operates. Now the hypostasis did not exist in human nature before the union as is clear from question 4, article 2. Therefore, the grace of union precedes, in thought, habitual grace. Reply to objection 1. Augustine here means, by grace, the gratuitous will of God, bestowing benefits, gratis. And hence every man is said to be made a Christian by the same grace whereby a man became Christ, since both take place by the gratuitous will of God without merits. Reply to Objection 2. As disposition in the order of generation precedes the perfection to which it disposes, in such things as are gradually perfected, so it naturally follows the perfection which one has already obtained, as heat, which was a disposition to the form of fire, is in effect flowing from the form of already existing fire. Now the human nature in Christ is united to the person of the word from the beginning without succession. Hence, habitual grace is not understood to have preceded the union, but to have followed it as a natural property. Hence Augustine says in his Incuridian 40, Grace is in a manner natural to the man Christ. Reply to Objection 3. The common precedes the proper when both are of the same genus, but when they are of diverse genera, there is nothing to prevent the proper being prior to the common. Now the grace of union is not in the same genus as habitual grace, but is above all genera even as the divine person himself. 
Hence there is nothing to prevent this proper from being before the common, since it does not result from something being added to the common, but is rather the principle and source of that which is common. End of question 7 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.